Welcome everybody to Hacker Valley Blue, where we get the industry's best and brightest cyber defenders to share their experiences and tips on how you can better defend your assets and networks. everyone, it's me, Simone Biles. You might be wondering why you're hearing my voice on a cybersecurity podcast ad. Well, it's because I'm partnering with Axonius. Whether you're a gymnast like me, or an IT or security pro, complexity is inevitable. And I've learned that the key to success is focusing on what you can control. Go check out my video at axonius.com Simone. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash S-I-M-O-N-E. This season is all about the color purple. We'll be bridging the gap between red and blue teams and combining their strengths to form purple teams. Join me as I meet with some of the very best purple teamers out there who are changing the way we do security on a daily basis. We're going to go ahead and explore their journeys, talk about their time from red and or blue teams, some of the challenges they faced, as well as some of the successes and benefits from coming together and forming one team to defend against cyber threats from all over the world. So let's go. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I am your host, Davin Jackson. I am super glad to be here for season two of Hacker Valley Blue. This season, we are going to talk about bridging the gap, bridging that red and blue gap to bring into purple teams and talk about why that's so important. And when I decided I needed to do that, I had to basically bring up my new team. And the first person that came to mind is someone who I'm sure you've probably seen kicking butt all over the place, whether it's an InfoSec hot tub on Twitter or her own social media stuff, or if you've worked with her or... If you've heard her on her new show, her new podcast that she just launched recently, if you don't know by now, I am talking about Meryl Vernon, a.k.a. She Who Hacks. So let's give her a round of applause and welcome her to the show. Thank you so much, Davin. How are you doing? Doing excellent. Thank you. I have the biggest smile on my face ever now. (laughs) It's well-deserved. So again, thank you for being on the show and thank you for agreeing to talk to me today. So before I go into who you are and stuff, why don't you give a brief introduction to the people and just talk about how you got started? Yeah, absolutely. Hi. If you don't follow me already, you definitely should. No, but my name is Meryl Vernon. I am a red teamer, still a red teamer, but currently a purple teamer. I am known for getting into InfoSec just over three years ago. Uh, I started off in Brisk, and before I worked in InfoSec, I was a social media manager. So I'm someone who definitely broke into tech very recently from a non-technical background. Rose to the echelons very quickly, went from Brisk to pen testing to red teaming into purple team program management, which is what I do today. So when David wanted to talk about purple things, I'm like, oh, yes, let's talk about bringing the blue and red things together. Makes me happy. Absolutely. That's another reason why I decided to have you on the show, because for me, when I if you saw what I've done in the last season, I'm a big comic book nerd. So 
I love bringing in that element to talking to the to guests that I have on here. And one of the things that really intrigued me is the origin stories. And your origin story is one that is awesome and yet inspiring to those who feel like they can't get into cyber. And I've heard you talk about it, especially, like I said, InfoSec Hot Tubs that we've done with Parker in the past on Twitter. But you had one that's, I guess, a road not really traveled, road less traveled, we should call mm -hmm. it. You basically walked in and told them, look, this is what I got, but this is what I'm willing to bring. Talk about that. Elaborate into that a little bit, because I think it's definitely inspiring and good to hear from someone, especially for the people who aren't too sure whether they should make that leap into cybersecurity and how to go about it. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. One of the things I'm known for now is my tenacity and my passion and bringing that big energy with me. But I didn't always have it, especially when I first came into InfoSec. I was definitely a big marketing energy person. I really knew what I knew in the marketing realm. And you can't school me on marketing. I pretty much know everything there is to know. But when I came into this realm, I was, I was very new. And I knew I was a little fish in a big pond. And I was really hoping to break into a field where honestly, no one hands you an opportunity. No one gives you anything. You have to fight for it. And I got in on literally nothing more than socializing my title in the guard on LinkedIn and getting recruited for a private industry cybersecurity position, which was the risk position. So when I came into the interview, they were like, we need you to backfill someone right now who's got a master's in cybersecurity and she's managing all the third-party risk and the SOC 2 audits. And I'm like, I'm going to stop you right there. If you need all that to do this job, I'm already screwed because I don't have that and I don't have that experience. And I don't think I can do this job, quite frankly. And they're like, no, we think you could. And I was like, okay, let me talk to this lady. So I talked to her and I said, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? She was like, I work with these big documents. I email people. I kind of funnel things along in the process. Like I got your piece back, give it to the next person. You do work with very technical audits, but all you're really looking is for deviations and you're briefing people on what those deviations are and telling them how much we're going to increase risk by working with that vendor or onboarding that agency. And I'm like, oh, okay. So once you break it down from all the scary cyber terms, this is actually a very doable job on a day-to-day -day basis. And I was like, great. So I told them, listen, I don't know anything technical at all. Nothing. Like my famous line is I didn't even know how IP addresses worked. But I was like, I have an, a high academic aptitude. I scored like a 98 on my ASVAB. And the guard let me into cyber. So they already believe in me. And I'm really good at taking very complex things and breaking them down into very easily digestible pieces for non-technical people because my dad's an engineer and I've been a non-technical person my whole life. So that's what I bring. If you're comfortable with that and you'll give me the time to learn, I guarantee you, I'll make you proud. I guarantee you, I won't. The thing that I'm not an expert in today, I'll be an expert in next week. And they're like, okay, good enough for us. You're obviously very smart. You like to speak. We don't like speaking at all. So I leaned in hard to those soft skills that I knew that I brought with me in lieu of the technical skills I did not have. And for that company, that was enough. That got my foot in the door and then they plugged me into the matrix, so to speak, and I learned all the things and off I went. Down the rabbit hole you went. Yes. First and foremost, from one veteran to another, thank you for your service. That's awesome to hear. And two, I think what really resonates with your story is the transferable skills. You said you came from a marketing background. Your dad was an engineer. So you've had that breakdown of almost... I don't want to say dumbing it down, but breaking it down to simple terms and then look, being able to look at the job and at first being intimidated by it. And then when you really get to understand and talk with the people, you're like, oh, this is just doing this. I'm OK with that. And I can now I can do the job. And I think that's one of the big fears that a lot of people have is they read the job requirements and they're like, 
oh my gosh, this is too much for me. And it's honestly, it's a GRC role. Knocking GRC or not knocking some stuff was like, trust me. But you're probably enough, or you can probably learn it when you get there. Once you boil down all these 20 nice-to-haves that they're like, oh, and wouldn't it be great if that person also knew this? But if you boil it down to one thing, they're like, we just really need your help migrating 400 assets to the cloud. You're going to do it under someone else's direction. He knows how to tell you how to do it. You're just going to help us get it done. And then move on to the next project. But it's employers never say that. They always make these job descriptions very intimidating and very big. And once I understood the job, what the job was and not what the job looks like it is, I was like, oh, this is how I can do this job. This is how I can do it better than anyone else. These are the skills that I bring. These are the strengths that I have. These are the deficits that I have. And if we're all good with the deficits, then it also gave me that grace. It gave me that learning curve to be the dumbest person in the room. And I was like, hi, I don't know how that works. Or hi, I don't know what that is. I was like, I've already set that bar of expectation nice and low for you. (laughs) So if I know something today, I'm looking better, but I gave myself permission to be the stupid one in the room with a lot of experts because I don't want to, so many infosec professionals suffer in silence. Like they'll come in and they'll be like, oh, I don't want to look stupid. So rather than learning from all these smart people around me, I'm going to pretend I know, fiddle around on my own, like flounder, be confused, do a bunch of research, take twice as long to understand it, and then not even understand it half as good as I could have if I could have just gone to you and said, will you explain this to me? please do that because that's one of the ways I got accelerated so quickly was I was just not afraid to look unintelligent or uneducated in front of my peers. No, that's definitely a gem because you also have the people who deal with the imposter syndrome. And a lot of the times when you actually talk to the people who have the imposter syndrome, me included, when I first got started, it was for that very reason. It was, man, you have these people who sound like they're so advanced and I have no idea what they're talking about. And now all of a sudden you feel like you don't belong or you feel out of place. And then it reminds me of like the meme that's been circling around social media lately, where it's like the job requirements and it's like Kubernetes and Linux and this and that. And it's what the job really is. And it's just like Excel. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's so intimidating people. And I was, and we actually talked about this on a recent episode of my podcast, where talking technically and feeling like you belong and giving yourself that foundational knowledge, not only sound like one of them, but be able to purport your knowledge in the way that they can consume it. Like my mother, speaking of getting people into cyber, I harp on her on that episode. I'm like, she's Meryl, I can't do what you and your father do. I can't do technical things like that. I'm like, mom, yes, you can. You don't have to be a pen tester to work in cyber. There is a cyber position for anyone as technical or non-technical as you want to be. You want to be a privacy professional? We don't understand that at all because it's not very technical, but we need people who really get it, who can advise the technical people on what to do and how to be compliant to it. So I got her started on a GRC course because I think she would kill it in GRC. And she came to me and she was like, Meryl, tell me, did I say this correctly? you exploit vulnerabilities in someone's network. And I was like, yes, that's it. Rather than saying you find the bad things before the bad people do, I was like, mom, you just described my job to me in infosec terms. Like now I'm starting, I I would believe you're one of us because of how you speak to me now. Yes. You just spoke technical jargon. (laughs) Yes, you did. Correctly. So I always tell people it's not for everyone, but anyone can do it. Absolutely. Anyone can walk on scene tomorrow, start learning it and do it. But part of that confidence and where I got it from, because I didn't have it when I applied to be the pen tester, I was like, I don't have 90% of that stuff. This is like a limiting belief that women do to themselves a lot. I don't have 90% of that stuff. There's no way they'll take me. And they're like, Meryl, we wrote this job description for that guy and you're better than that guy. Do you think you're better than that guy? And I was yeah, then we think you should go for it. By the way, he would go for it if he had two things on that job description. He doesn't put limits on himself. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. So I did. And that's what enables me now to come in and say, listen, I don't know if I'm the best person. I don't know if I'm the most qualified, but this is what I can do. This is what you need. And this is how I can uniquely address that problem. This is how fast I can do it. And if that's good enough for you, then we can work together. 
That's awesome. Congrats for getting your mother to join the dark side, as I call it. Me too. I was like, welcome. <laughs> My wife comes came from a legal background as well. I tell her all the time, I think you'd be great in like doing compliance or GRC or anything like that as well. Privacy, yeah. But she's also very artistic, which is why she has her cake business. So shout mm-hmm. out to her. But you talked about making that jump into pen testing. I guess I should ask you, what made you jump into pen testing? Because for me, I like to compare it to, I tell everybody who wants to get interested in pen testing, I'm like, some people might call it a little bit of craziness or something, but it's like, I look at things with, there's like this itch back here. I have to satisfy that itch. That itch is always like, what does this do? What mm-hmm. happens if I do this? What about that? What about that? It's almost like a child, a curious child. Like, What's this do? What's this do? What's this do? So I like to talk to other pen testers like, do you have that itch? And is that what made you made the jump into pen testing? Because again, cybersecurity is, like you said, a vast ocean of different things. And you can be yes. anywhere. And like I said, with your engineering background and your marketing, and heck, you could even do marketing and cybersecurity. You know, what made you go from, okay, this is what I know. And I know I'm good here to jumping in here and saying, I'm going to go further down the rabbit hole. When I got into pen testing, I actually thought I wanted to go into audit. I didn't actually know all the places I could go in cyber. I thought you could be like a architect, a CISO. I didn't really know what all the cloud architects and security engineers and ISOs and DevSecOps people are all different functions. And I didn't know that. So just one of the first things I was exposed to as the risk person, I worked very closely with what we called at the time, the vulnerability assessor. And that's the position that grew into the pen tester. They figured out that wasn't really enough. Like we need to have this person doing higher echelons of offensive testing. But again, that guy was kind of, I mean, I kind of benefited because he was kind of lazy, but I came in as the risk person and I, what I call a process hacker. And now I know the word for that is like a Six Sigma person, but I come in and I take what something is and I tighten it up and make it better and make it take half the time. So I don't have to spend all my time doing that stupid thing. So I took my job and I automated the crap out of it. Once I could do it in about 10% of my time, I started taking on other projects. So I started admining the asset management tool and the vulnerability management platform and the DLP tool and the IAM man- management tool and all these things. And I was getting my finger into all these places and understanding how they all worked with our program and how I would provide data for certain investigations and incidents and stuff like that. And then when the pen tester came about, I was like, this is really just like the next step in evolution of what I was doing anyway. I think I could do that. And if it's too hard to learn and I suck at it, I'll just go back to audit or go back to something else. But I really think I could do it and do well. So for me, it was just that hubris of, could I be good at that too? When I started learning foreign languages, I speak four. French was my first one. And I got really good at French really quickly. And I was like in college, am I good at all languages or just French? So I enrolled in four of them just to see how well I would do. And I killed it in all of them. So I was like, okay, I guess I got to pick one now. But that's what I did with pen testing too. I was like, this sounds highly technical. This would be like the most technical thing I've ever attempted. I could totally wash out of this and totally fail, or I could get really, really good. And that sounds really exciting. So I just decided to try it. But I have always been that person who like, if you want to be a pen tester, you can't be one of those good enough people. Okay, we did a few spot checks, call it good. It's like, no, I will read all 289 pages of SOC 2 type 2 to find your one deviation. If you have one, I'm going to find it. (laughs) That's not good enough for me. I will check every dot on a 10 file. I don't care. If there's 90 of them, I don't care. So you really got to have that instigative mindset. I need to check all, like you're looking for your cell phone in your house and someone's like, it will never be in the cabinet. You can automatically check off the cabinet. It's like, you have to have that desire to check everywhere, even the illogical places where that thing could never be hiding because that's how adversaries work. Absolutely. It makes me think of a pen test that I was just recently where everything looked like it was fine. It was like, 
There's no way this no printer. Way. <laughs> a printer? No. Lovely. <laughs> and it was just like one thing led to another. And then it was, oh, I have a report. Again, I think it's that itch, that mentality of, okay, you have to look everywhere. You have to be willing everywhere. to look everywhere. You have to be willing to even learn sometimes on the fly because there's sometimes you might run across a technology or something that's on a port and you're like, wait, what is this? And then you look and then again, that curiosity has to hit you. So again, that's awesome. I'm definitely one of those people too. I'm just like you though. (laughs) That's who you have to be. Yeah, I agree 100%. And now you said then from there you escalated or elevated, I should say, to a red team position. Usually when you hear red team, a lot of people think, Oh, well, red team's just pen testing. No, red teaming is a lot different. (laughs) Yes, are pen testers on a red team? Yes. Yes. But is a red team engagement your regular penetration test? No. So now you went from not very technical to audit role to a pen testing role that is very technical. And then you moved into red teaming, which is pen testing on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer red teaming to pen testing. A lot of people don't. It's a little too slow paced for them. But were you going to ask what the differences is or what I like better? I was going to ask you what the difference, like I said, now you you host your own stuff now and now you already know the questions that's going to be asked. I'm not a social engineer. What do you want from me? What are the differences? And then, yeah, what do you like about red teaming as opposed to just pen testing or anything else? There are quite a few notable differences. The first and foremost being that pen testers only get a short period of time to come in and try and find as much wrong as possible. Like everyone's like, God, this pen test report is so daunting. It's got 80 findings. It's like, that's good. That's what you want. Like they had a very short two week period. You paid them a lot of money to come in, find as much as they could to give you your best absolute shot before you publish this thing or before go live or whatever. So you want them to give you as much as possible. Otherwise, if they gave you five findings, that was 20K each. I hope that was worth it for you. So they try to find a lot. They want to come in and no matter where they land, no matter where they are, they're trying everything. They're trying to throw in the kitchen sink at it. Oh, is that a database? Let's try some SQL. Oh, is that a web app? Let's try some cross-site scripting. Oh, is that a cloud? Let's try and look for some keys. Let's try and enumerate some S3 buckets. Like they're trying to do all the things they can possibly do. So their scope it's limited in asset, but not really limited in like methodology, whereas a red team is going to be very limited in methodology. They have very clearly defined objectives. And if they land on a box that is not what they need or they can pivot somewhere that's not what they need or not furthering an objective, they really don't waste their time with it. They're not like, well, I could just enumerate and see where else I could get, like, because that's not directly benefiting their end job. At one time, one of our goals was like to get to the billing dashboard, which means you have root level access. And someone was like, we could get to secrets manager. That I was like, but that's not our objective. But we could do it, but that's not our objective. So you want to stay on target when you're on a red team engagement. Additionally, red team engagements are highly CTI influenced. Like you really want to take adversarial behavior and emulate it exactly. If they wouldn't deviate from here and just download this off GitHub and pull this tool in and do this thing, then don't do it. You have to do it with what they would use in their toolbox, or you're not giving that organization a really good representation of their defensive capability against a specific APT. Whereas pen testers are going to try, again, anything and everything. They kind of use a lot of signature-based stuff. They want to make sure your EDR solution is working, making sure a solution is working the way they say it will versus trying to do something the way an adversary would do it are two very different philosophies. Also, red team engagements, generally you get like quite a few weeks to prep and then you get four to six weeks vulnerability period. Pen testing, you get two weeks to spin up, have a kickoff call, establish the ROEs, two weeks to pen test, one week to write a report and you're done. Turn around, do another one. So I prefer red teaming cadence of ops because I want to make that thing perfect. I want to make sure it's like baking a cake. Like when you put it into the oven, you're like, this is the best it could possibly be. I can't wait to see when it comes out. Whereas pen testing, you're like, throw a dash of that, taste that, add this, add this, add this. And it's just, 
it's very chaotic. I mean, it's fun. You're going at it. But I just prefer red teaming for me personally. I did write a big article on which touches on a lot of the differences. It's on CSO if anyone wants to read it. But they are very different. So please don't tell red teamers. They're just pen testers. But I love pen testing. <laughs> when I tell the difference, I'm like, pen testing, snapshot in time. Red team engagement. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's an engagement. It's a long-term, yeah. well, not necessarily long-term, but it's a longer Hopefully. exercise. You want to persist in an environment a lot longer, usually is a goal of a red team operation, whereas pen testers want to know if you're firing alerts and if your MSSP is alerting you and stuff like that. And the other thing I notice about with pen testing is, I'm sure a lot of us could speak to this, is the sometimes the panic mentality. So you're week two of a two-week engagement, halfway there, and you don't really have much So now you're like, okay, I have these things that are potential. So I'm just going to, some people, I'm just going to spray and pray and see what sticks. I'm just going to throw this at the wall. Hopefully it doesn't take it down. Where with a red team engagement, like you said, we know that's there. That's not, we're not worried about that. And again, because you have that longer amount of time, you can craft your attack. Take your time. Yeah, you can take your time. You can craft your attack. You can figure out the intricacies of it. One of the things that they tell a lot of, new pen testers is don't just go on GitHub or exploit DB and just download it and just shoot it at your target because sometimes you might open up a backdoor to your machine. Stands to reason. <laughs> yeah. With red team engagements, okay, so this is what we're looking for, but maybe we can tweak it a little. We need to tweak it a little bit. It gives you that time and that almost that calming sensation where it's like, okay, I don't have to worry about it tomorrow. Like yeah. I'm not gonna, I don't have to worry about is the CEO going to contact my boss and say, Hey, what's going on with the pen test? What's this or what's that? You have that time. It's expected. I also like that the trade craft is different. Before, when I was pen testing and not red teaming, I was like, oh, call back. Cool. I'll just do all the things. And I didn't learn. Spawn new ones and kill your old ones or leave these running over here so that they'll be investigated and they lead back to nowhere. And your real infrastructure is over here and covering tracks and sleeping callbacks and things like that. I had no idea about any of that stuff until I started working on a red team. And obviously, one of the things that happens with a red team is working with the blue team. And I specifically say working with the blue team because for too long, it's been working against the blue team, working versus the blue team. Us versus them. Us versus them. And I feel like I want to get your thoughts on that, but I feel like that was a mistake. For one, we're all competitive by nature, especially in this field. So I think that plays a role in it. But then I also want to place some of the blame on upper management because for a long time it was, oh, we're going to get them and make them look whatever. And then after a while, some finally someone somewhere that they listened to said, hey, we should probably work Be more friends. together. But then you had some CISOs and some managers and I, especially in some of the, my previous roles where it was still like, yeah, we're a team, but F those guys over there. So what are your thoughts on that? And I guess the difficulties that arise from having that siloed headbutting mentality? It just doesn't serve anyone. Like for me, I came in to fight an uphill battle already. My blue team actually used to call me the boppy millennial chicken security. And they would be like, oh, wow, she's here again to tell us what we did wrong. Is she even qualified to do her job? And like, I don't understand that mentality because it's, I don't, care why the system's the way it is. I don't care if you inherited it from a guy who set it up three decades ago. I don't care if you were overworked and you missed something. I'm not here to tell you you're bad at your job. What I'm here to do is to help secure us against the possibility of a breach coming down on everybody's head. I look bad. You look bad. My boss looks bad. Everybody looks bad if we have a breach happen. But so many 
pen testers and offensive people in the very beginning came in with that big ego energy. They were like, we are the champions. We pwned you and tell you all the ways they did it. And they're sitting there in the meeting looking like the cat who ate the canary. And they're like, this is going to be so bad. This is going to be so bad. We found a freaking back door. You're so screwed. We might get really jazzed by those things. Exploits make us really excited. We want to know how it works and why it works and where we can shut it down and how it can be abused. But to someone else, they're literally just hearing how bad of a job they did. And we didn't really take that into consideration. So one of the first things I do in a new pen testing or red teaming position is I start reaching out to people and introducing myself and making myself a human rather than a position. And it makes me one of those go-to people where they're no longer, oh crap, like we don't want the red team to find what we hid. They're like, hey, we think this is a big problem and no one will believe us. Can you punctuate that in an exercise so we can get some attention on them? Like, yeah, I'm happy to advocate for you guys. I'm happy to do you, whatever you think is important. You're the boots on the ground. Let's do it. So it's all about reaching out across those chasms and building that rapport and having those friendships. Honestly, don't just talk to people when you need something from them. Don't just deliver a report. Don't just harp on them about findings and like open tickets and stuff like hang out with them outside of that and outside of op cadence and let them get to know you as a person. But like us operating in silos has just broken offensive operations completely. We actually had a blue team once come to us and say, we need you to stop. Like we're already three ops behind in tickets. We've got like more than we can fix. Like we need you to cool it. And I'm like, we have OKRs. We can't just stop. They have fatigue. They have decreased morale. Now we have decreased morale because we're like, we're designing all these big fancy kill chains and doing all this good work that we think will really help the org. And we're not helping the org. What killed my heart one day as a pen tester, I was less than one year into pen testing. And the only thing I had to change on a report six months apart were the dates. All the findings persisted. And I'm just, this isn't working. And it doesn't make me feel like I'm doing my job. And I don't feel like I'm contributing. So we've got to do something else. There's got to be something else. And that's why I pretty much started purple teaming from day one. Like I didn't want my findings to go into a backlog to die. I wanted them to actually be fixed. So that's what I think, honestly, the result has been. And I, and we can try and change it one mindset at a time, but it's going to take a long time. Like I still meet people who kind of have it out for me. They're like, yeah, she's so hard to get a hold of. And she, we don't really know what she's doing all day. Because purple teams, it's like you're either doing more pen testing or you're doing nothing at all. There is no in between. And I'm like, I have to sit down with them and be like, do you really think I'm not doing my job? Do you really think I add no value? Do you think I'm doing nothing? They're like, no. I'm like, then why would you do that? Let's help each other. If my program succeeds, your product succeeds and we all succeed. But if I fail, we all look bad. So you'll still see it today. Like I'm dealing with it actively today. So it breaks my heart that it became this way, but all we can do is try and change it one purple team at a time. Yeah. It's that justifying your existence thing that irks me. And there's many reasons for that, but we're going to save that for another day. But <laughs> that's another topic. <laughs> that's another topic for another day. But one of the things that you harped on was reaching out and saying, look, I'm not here to make you look bad. I started in a, doing consulting and I guess what you would call a pen test puppy mill where it was pen test, report. They didn't really care. They just wanted the document that said they were complying or whatever onto the next one. And I always felt like that was wrong. I would say I found certain, I'm like, no, I, I found this. Yeah. But could you take that high and just make it a medium? Listen, they just need uh -huh. that. They just need the executive document that says that they're PCI compliant, but they're not. Like, I remember I went in, like I went and did an assessment on a medical facility and they were vulnerable to MSO 867, which was the literally the very first exploit I learned in pen testing. And it was like, if I push this button, I'm scared to push this button because yes, I will own you, but I'm also scared that I might like, go down. Yeah, I might yeah. take something down or someone could actually die. Like, I don't know. And I remember doing that and 
I wrote up the report and I wrote the report with a tone of urgency because I felt like you're a medical facility. You have people in there. You have PHI in there. And I remember going back and they were like, yeah, but can we just tone it a little bit because they really just want to say that they're compliant. I'm like, but no, they're not. And then there was a whole fight there because I'm like, I'm not signing. I'm not signing off on it, which led to that. And then or I would be on other pen tests and they would literally like change the scope mid-assessment because it was like, I can't fix this right now. So that's no longer. Take scope. that asset away. That asset yeah. doesn't exist. <laughs> and it, so I took that and then future jobs, I would go and I'd go, look, I'm not here to make you look bad. I'm not here to get you in trouble. I'm not here to ruin your review or whatever raise or bonus you're slated to get. I'm here to help. So tell me what I need to do. And then when I moved into the AppSec space, I actually took that same mentality with the developers. That was touch and go. That was 50-50. You have some developers who were like, oh, that's awesome. And you have other developers who would say a lot of things that if I said right now, Chris and Ron would be mad at me for saying out here. I would meet with the developers and I and similar, like I remember I walked in and they were like, here's all the findings that we had recently. They said they were remediated. Can you look into it? It was like a spreadsheet of like 400 vulnerabilities that were found and maybe 80% of them were still there. And it was like, why aren't you doing this? Oh, we're busy with the sprints. And then, so what I ended up doing is I had to take, I took a couple weeks and I actually moved my desk to where the developers, where the developers work. Cause I, this is my first AppSec job. So I'm learning about the sprint process and learning about certain things. So now I can go, okay, well, you are supposed to save 10% of your sprint for security fixes. So let's do this. And I worked together with them and it worked harmoniously for about three months until (laughs) the next big release came out and then they hated my guts again. I think that discourse and that conversation is needed between several teams, red teams, blue teams, development teams, because they need to know that, like you said, we're all on the same team and Although you might look at me like, what is he doing or what is she doing or what are they doing? Do they even belong here? If I don't do my job well, somebody out there is going to do it way better than me. You're not going to have the opportunity to debate whether or not is it a high or a critical or a medium because it's going to be, holy crap, we had a breach. We need to fix it now. We're probably going to get fined or we're probably going to get whatever because we're no longer compliant with whatever. So, yes, are we going to butt heads? Sure. But at the end of the day, I'm here so that I can find it before they do. It's almost like a couple. It's like a marriage. It's like arguing effectively. If you both maintain the idea that you're right and you're just not going to give up the win to the other side, nothing is going to get done. You have to decide if you want to be better or if you want to be but you can argue effectively. There's a way to disagree with someone in a manner that I'm like, oh, you have a counterpoint? Let me hear it. Am I doing this wrong? Let me hear it. I'll eat a slice of humble pie if I'm wrong, but you better back that up with some evidence or something tangible and not just like your feels about it. But yeah, there's an effective way. I'll be like, you know, I encountered this in a meeting recently. Someone was like, there's no value in purple teaming. I'm not going to waste my resources time with it. We think you should just finish the project and book a red team engagement. And I was like, My bosses were like, just get him off the phone, get him off the phone. Obviously, he doesn't subscribe to the disruption. That's fine. I was like, with all due respect, no. I was like, you know what? I understand where you're coming from. I recognize that you don't see the value and you don't think it's a good use of your people's time. It might not work with your flow as it sits right now. But with all due respect, we are going to continue on with this way. I do think there's value in it, especially once we start doing what we say we're going to do. And at that point in time, if you find it does work with your team flow, i.e. you do want to play nice with us because we're doing the good stuff. We're happy to incorporate you at that time. But if it turns out it's not feasible with how your team currently works, I completely understand. Absolutely. But there is a way to dis- to disagree respectfully 
There's a way to, I understand that you want to do it this way, but have we considered doing it this way? Or let's try it this way. Or maybe that's not necessarily, then I'm like, you're right. That's not necessarily end all be all. There's other factors to consider. I'm happy to change my, but I will not downgrade a severity rating to make you feel better. Boom. Don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) That high just became a crit. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make it worse. (laughs) Yeah, technically. (laughs) Wait, oh, what was that? What was that? Oh, you'd like this to be an informational? Congratulations. Now it's a 9.8. <laughs> okay, so you just touched on it. What is the value to blue teaming, in your opinion? To blue teaming? Not blue teaming, to purple teaming. Oh, to purple teaming. I was going to say, the blue team's got so much value. Are you kidding? They're your first, second, and third lines of defense. The value in purple teaming is it, it has so many tangible and intangible benefits. One of the things it's able to do on the tangible side is to definitively demonstrate proactive and reactive cyber resilience if it's done properly. Like you can actually say, this is our quantified ability to thwart an attack proactively or to reactively identify, contain, and recover from an incident. Because I always tell people, I can't protect you from the zero days. I can't protect you from stuff like that happening. But what we can do is set ourselves up for success as much as possible. Plans useless, planning indispensable. But the non-tangible benefits is increased blue team morale, increased red team morale. You're at, you're increasing their education on adversarial mindset. So like you're telling the blue team, look at what I'm doing. Do you see how what I'm doing generates this and it looks like this? You wouldn't normally think that's bad. But the next time they'd be like, oh, I remember seeing that in an exercise. I remember then she did this right after that. I wonder if that's happening around this. Normally something that would have looked innocuous or wouldn't have been a value-added manual investigation, identifying IOCs and correlating them on their own. And they're able to automate as much as possible, but there's got to be some manual investigation done. And we want to increase the value-added manual investigations without severely increasing false positives. So we're tightening down things around those processes, you're tightening down incident response processes, you're reducing your mean time to detect and your mean dwell time on like the red and blue sides. But those aren't technically metrics of my team's ability to trickle all that down and to make security as effective and efficient as it can be. That's the benefit of a purple team because everyone's working together and we're influenced by CTI and we're bringing in detection engineers and we're doing things in a practical way, but we're also having the people who do the hacking educate. Now I would go for this because of this. Now I'm presented with two options here. I would go for this one because I'm hoping that will yield this. And they're like, oh, I remember they went after that piece of info. We should probably put a few more things, a few more controls on top of that, or maybe look at a new solution with our new budget to address that thing. And so you start benefiting from all these well-rounded, like well-educated, kind of like Renaissance security professionals. Like I'm not just an expert in my lane. I'm an expert in my lane with how it touches your lanes. And that's honestly one big fat happy white team. That's how it should work. <laughs> so well said. And I think one of the keywords that you put in there was efficiency. So I think now would be a good time to shout out our sponsor for season two of Hacker Valley Blue. This podcast is sponsored by PlexTrack, the proactive cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform, bringing red and blue teams together for better collaboration and communication. PlexTrack empowers teams to communicate findings between red and blue teams electronically for rapid remediation, centralize remediation efforts, and automate ticket generation for faster, more efficient workflows, facilitate tabletop exercises, purple teaming engagements, breach and attack simulations, and more. A better security posture begins and ends with PlexTrack. Claim your free month of PlexTrack and get a copy of our blue team content bundle at PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. Again, that's PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. So, Meryl... In talking about the efficiency, how does a tool like PlecTrack help with that overall efficiency and the collaborating between teams? 
most of all, it's that like usually to get access to red team findings, you need to be one of the blue team members who actively puts in and monitors tickets or the red team themselves. So there's a lot of bottleneck when it comes to offensive operations because like red teams will get stuck in the retest hamster wheel. Hey, we think we closed this, test it again. Hey, we changed it, do it again. And you're like, okay, we need to move on to the next thing. We can't keep retesting this over and over and over for you. And regression testing, okay, we just made a major environment change. Do we open ourselves up to anything we had previously already closed? That'll take a red team for freaking ever. So tools like PlexTrack are so great because not only from a reporting perspective, do they allow the stakeholders and the blue teams to feed themselves on TTPs we've already tested and their current, like their current defensive status. Like, I don't like to say like how well we're defending against this thing, but if it's covered from a variety of sources and a variety of information and logs, lets them feed themselves and it lets you correlate controls and improvements over time back to specific campaigns. So like from this operation, how much did we improve? From this operation, how many new controls or TTPs were closed or remediated or whatever? And from a management perspective, program management and offsec management and stakeholder management lets your manager advocate on your behalf so you're not constantly having to attend outbreaks that aren't really your job as a red teamer. Let's everyone have access to those results. It's a great place to correlate and keep things in a very central location. And if you're very early on in your maturity of operations and you're not doing a whole lot that's super customized, it's a great way to nail down your baselines and get all your low and medium hanging fruit out of the way immediately. So I'm a big fan of stuff like that. I think without even thinking about it, I think a tool like PlexTrack also fixes a lot of the issues that we talked about earlier as far as fixing the morale and fixing that question of what do they even do? Because now everyone has that platform to look at and say, okay, so this is what they found and this is what they're doing. Or for the red teamers, they can say, okay, this has been remediated. So this is what they're doing. And I think that would actually just help with that bridging the gap that we talked about. So it does. Cause then it's not a secret. It's not, Oh, we're doing all these secret things you can't know about. It's like oh, out in the open. It's transparency. And if your tool or solution lets you put things into runbooks, you can take as many TTPs from a campaign as possible, put them into a runbook, automate them, and let them retest themselves. It's like regression testing on a platter. (laughs) Again, shout out to PlexTrack. Please give them a try and tell them Davin sent you. I don't get anything for it, but you can say Davin and Meryl said hi. So moving right along, I think we talked about the benefits of it, and we talked about the embracing that change. But my fear with Purple Teams or purple teaming right now, is that it's a buzzword. A lot of companies, again, like so many other things, say all the buzzwords because it serves whatever purpose. And that 6, 12, 18 months from now, we're going to go right back to the same old stuff that we're doing. How do we get some of these other upper management or CISOs, whatever you want to call them, in leadership to not only embrace it, but be patient enough with it to see the actual benefits. Because what happens is a lot of times they go, okay, fine, we're going to try this. When they finally cave in, we'll try it. And then the next quarter, they're already having, oh, we're having our doubts. And then after that, then they're like, we're going to go back to this because this is how I think it should be. So how do we get them to not only embrace the change, but continue on with the process until it starts bearing fruit? First of all, I will say that those of you who are not currently purple teaming, all the big boys you look up to have been purple teaming for years. It hasn't been called purple teaming, but they've been doing it for years. And there's a reason they do it. And we're now talking about it. It's now become a standardized, like publicized, let's help each other do it thing. But they've been doing it for a long time. And if you wonder why no one's breached them yet or like why they're doing so well, that might be a key component. But the number one thing I will say is like, 
please don't rush to implement these ops just because you're freaking out that you're behind on a trend. I think that's what happened with red teaming. I think people are like, great, we stood up the defenses. We're going to get offensive testing off the ground. Hire the red teamers. And it's your big, sophisticated, super expensive red teamers are bored because your blue team can't keep up with them. And then you're going to start purple teaming anyway, because your red team can't just keep executing clandestine ops against the blue team who has no shot in hell keeping up. I saw that with CyberShield when I participated in CyberShield for the National Guard. So we ended up just stopping the exercise, breaking the book open and doing it purple team style for them anyway. So what I'm going to say is implement it slowly and have a realistic idea of KPIs in mind. Like one of the first things that I do when I sit down and I evaluate someone's realistic implementation of a purple team is I say, what are you hoping to gain? Or what are you not currently getting from offensive ops? Do you have offensive ops? Is it in-house or out of house? Are you failing a bunch of audits? Are you failing a bunch of pen tests? Are you, what is your need that you're hoping purple team will address? And I honestly tell them what they need. And if my product can do that and I say, okay, this is what you're hoping for, but this is what we do. They're not the same. What you probably need is one of these instead, but implement these ops the proper way. Don't just rush to get them hired rush to Google someone who purple teams and hire that person and set that person up for failure. But purple teamers should be out there understanding how highly customized this product is. The TTPs are customized, the methodology is customized, the organization of the team itself is customized, the implementation and tracking of the metrics is all customized. No two purple teams I've built have ever been the same. Zooms is different from employers is different from Aquias is different. They're all different. So like when people say, well, who goes on one and who belongs on one and who's a purple teamer? I'm like, that's going to be different for everybody. It could be a red teamer who got fed up and wants to help fix things. Could be a blue teamer who educates themselves in offensive capabilities. Could be someone who can not only execute and exploit, but threat hunt themselves. Like it could be anybody. So what I want to tell you is to have realistic patience with this product. There's going to be a lot of reaching out, building bridges, getting rapport built, assuring people building relationships with stakeholders, and then designing actual exercises and maturing those as well. They'll go from standalones to self-sustained to like full-blown collaborative, bringing lots of people in to eventually catch me if you can style. You can't expect that the first quarter. So have a realistic idea of what you need from your purple team. Understand fully if a purple team can address your needs. The people doing the purple teaming, tell them what you can do for them. Tell them what you provide and how you do it and how what you do differs from what other people might do. I might approach it differently than someone else would. And let's really set the product up for success. I refuse to let it fade away as a buzzword and go back to how we were doing it before because how we're doing it before is broken. Red teams feel like crap. Blue teams feel like crap. They're fed up. They're fed up. We're fed up. Breaches are happening left and right. It's not getting better. So it's time to do something we've never done if we want to have something we've never had before. And open up the gosh darn (laughs) training budget. Oh, God. Yeah, Sans, can we stop making training $10,000? Russia can afford to have their entire APT get your trainings, but like actual organizations who need them can't afford them. Look, this goes for the businesses, the organizations, and the vendors, the training vendors. Open For one, companies, open up your training budget. And to the schools, yeah, let's... Scale yeah, CISOs, stop expecting APT resilient level performance for you're wearing six hats and doing three jobs and getting one salary and we also won't invest in you because we don't want your skills to get better and then for you to leave us for someone who will pay you what you're worth. You need to train your people if you want them to be good at their jobs. And if you're afraid they'll leave, then freaking treat them better. Pay them better. I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. And a CEH is not enough. (laughs) A CEH is not enough. I have one. I got here without it. I got it in May of this year, April of this year. I got all the way to purple team program manager without it. And Where's your OSCP? I'm a cloud and web app pen tester. And also I'm a social engineer. So why do I need an OSCP? Because everyone has an OSCP, not me. I don't need it. (laughs) Where's your GSEC? You're right. I must know nothing about cybersecurity because I don't have a GSEC. (laughs) God help us all. (laughs) So yeah, all I'm saying is 
Stop expecting top tier level performance unless you're going to pay for it. CISOs, if you're truly scared and if, then put the money into your people, put the money into your people, put the money into the training regimen, get them the skills and knowledge they need to advance themselves and succeed, or you're going to stay where you've always been. And you might be surprised that the opposite might happen. A lot of them are scared. Oh, well, if we pay for all this training, they're just going to leave. Actually, if you invest in the people and make the people feel like they're valued, that's actually going to make them stay or that's going to be a driving factor when they do come across someone else that they might come across an offer that actually pays a little bit more. Nothing life changing, but like if it's like another five, five to seven grand or something like that, and they go, yeah, they look out for me. They let me do these trainings. They do this. They actually value me. I'm going to stick with what I know, then move into the land of the unknown, especially in these times where people are hiring and laying off literally like Mm -hmm. within weeks of each other. So you might be surprised if you make that investment in your people, that investment might actually, God forbid, pay off and do that. Okay. (laughs) Your cybersecurity might get better. Also, start trusting entry-level people. Obviously, your team is burned out. Obviously, you're understaffed. And obviously, you need more bodies. Not giving entry-level people a chance hasn't served us thus far. So why don't we just try it and see what the hell happens? I'll be honest with you. One of the things that I fought for in my last job negotiation was bringing in new people and I'm willing to be that person to help train them up or find the resources to help train them. Because like you said, training can be expensive. So I'm willing to actually go out there and say, Hey, you know what? I did this stuff on try hack me, or I did this stuff over here, or I found this little platform over here and help build these teams up because You're absolutely right. We all get burned out. And eventually we get burned out multiple times. Sometimes the burnout lingers. (laughs) So we do need fresh faces and fresh eyes and fresh thoughts to help continue to develop and build these teams and strengthen cybersecurity as a whole. Okay. I think, hope you guys are listening. I think we hammered on that. (laughs) I think we did. So one of the things that you do, we talked about your journey and your origin story and moving in from pen test from audit to pen testing to red teaming to now purple teaming. But you also do a lot of stuff on the outside that I really feel like, again, going back to the transferable skills, probably plays a role in that confidence and that drive that you have to make these moves and these pivots. So what are some of your hobbies that you'd like to do? My main hobby is probably bodybuilding. I do competitive bodybuilding. Not a lot of people know that about me, but it's something I started just about the same time as I started InfoSec. I started about three years ago and that has just had such a trickle down effect into everything. It's a very vain sport that I do. Don't get me wrong. But when I feel good about myself, I'm more confident and I branch out and I pioneer new things and I take on new projects and I volunteer for new stuff. And when I'm not feeling any of that, when I like am dissatisfied with my own body composition and my own appearance, it infiltrates everything. Like I go MIA offline. I stop doing podcasts. I stop doing projects. I stop speaking. I stop doing anything at all because it's just not feeding the continuous life cycle of like my effervescence. <laughs> so that's like my number one hobby. Besides that, I'm a single mom, so I don't get much free time. I we have saw, two I, little we girls. Saw the, we saw the special guest. Yeah, that was my oldest. So I also have a, a four-year-old. So that probably takes up most of my time. That and the podcast that I did launch and all the non-existent free time that I have. So those are probably my hobbies right now. 
<laughs> yes. We'll get into the podcasting thing in a minute. But for one, again, congratulations. They didn't know it was only about three years. That's amazing because I've seen some of the stuff and I'm like, okay, you come off as someone who's been here before. So it's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's all an act. <laughs> But again, that's amazing. And to your point, I think it does build that confidence. Yeah, bodybuilding can be a vain sport, but I think it's a vain sport for someone who would be vain about it. It does push you. It pushes you a lot to be better. It takes a lot of discipline. It forces you to really see like how much can you buckle down and get done. I'm not bodybuilding. I'm COVID bodybuilding or (laughs) post-COVID. But recently, since I've been on like the, my mini social media and pod content creation break, I did go and I actually hired a trainer and I go to the gym every morning or three times a week, I should say. I actually met someone who he wanted to challenge himself and he went from, I forgot what his before weight was, but he did that and he said, he started losing the weight and he said, okay, now he started to get complacent and he goes, I need a bigger challenge. So he said he was going to get into a bodybuilding competition and I used to watch him every day. And just seeing how he carried himself made me be like, okay, well, maybe I can get this, get this extra weight up or put this extra effort in. And then long story short, he ended up winning like third place in his bodybuilding competition. So shout out to him. But just in seeing him and then me really taking it seriously and then actually building that rapport and relationship with my trainer and now it does something with the mental health. Like you said, the the confidence and like, I wasn't feeling good and I didn't get to go to the gym and I felt like crap. I was just like, but I think there's something about it that does boost your confidence. And then it does allow you to take that and move into other places, walk into a meeting more confident or walk into an interview more confident, having that, if you have self-image issues or whatever, but then you start to see subtle changes in you, it's okay, yeah. And now it makes you want to keep going. So I think that in itself, because my next question was going to be, how does that translate into your day-to-day process as a cybersecurity professional? But I think we might have just touched on it there that seeing that makes you want to be better in all aspects. So it you does. can that if you want. I'm always someone who sets what people call psycho goals. I take a goal, like I'm going to get a cybersecurity master's one year into the field, and then I make it psycho in six months. I'm going to start bodybuilding this year, and I'm going to go for Olympia this year and get double golds. So like, it's one of those things where it's, it really does just make you wonder, kind of like that pen tester. I'm like, wonder if I could do it though. I wonder if I could do it in a year. I wonder if I could really dedicate and really make it happen. But I will just say it has infiltrated my infosec life in a work-life balance media as well. When I really need to step away from the computer or when I'm like really fired up after a meeting, I'm like, I'm going to go get some cardio in. Like I'm going to go get it out in like a productive way. But also it's taught me to treat myself with grace because People who bodybuild will be like, oh, I had carbs I shouldn't have had, or I had a glass of wine I shouldn't have had. And they'll just beat themselves up over it. And like, also it's kind of like golf. Like no one who shows up on competition day is ever happy with how they look. They always think they could look better. So I just think don't take it too far. Don't make it a toxic thing, but it's taught me info set grace. It's okay not to know everything. It's okay to misquote a port. That doesn't mean I'm a total idiot if I got the port wrong. Like things like that. It's taught me it's okay to walk away. It's okay to give yourself grace. It's okay to fall off the wagon and get back on. It's okay not to take that training that you purchased six months ago and to start it finally and to eat it in bite-sized portions. Like it's okay to do all these things, but it is also really nice to see the snowball effect of success. You win a small regional show, 
you win another one, you do even better, you place top five, you win. It's the same professionally. You do one pen test, you do another one, you write a great report, you socialize a bunch of results, you get to speak at a conference, you contribute to a tool, like you just, it just snowballs. So it's, it's one of those things that really motivates you from within to go for it, go for the pen testing things and go for whatever physical or athletic things it is that motivate you. Absolutely. And talking about doing things that make you happy and help you with your goals and stuff like that, you also talked about, you touched on it a little bit, but you also started a podcast, which Mm -hmm. again, congratulations from from one podcaster to another. Welcome. Yes. Welcome. I'm like, you should go listen to this podcast. He puts a lot of work into it. I understand. (laughs) Yeah. You see it now. When you're just listening to a podcast, you're like, okay, how hard can you do And then you do it. So hard. And not only that, then it makes you look at other podcasts going, how in the heck did they do that? Jack, Darknet Diaries. I'm like, he has to have recorded those like months ago and got all of them. But like really well-produced ones, it's just like, okay. But again, it makes you want to be like, okay, so what do I need to do to make it, to make mine better? Even Mm -hmm. what I'm doing here with the Hacker Valley team, it helps with my own show. Sometimes I look over there and I'm like, man, I love what Chris and Ron is doing now. How can I import that over here and make mine better? Enough of that. So why don't you talk about your new show? Because I guess that is the thing I've heard. I've heard it. It's amazing. So go right ahead and plug your show real quick. Thank you. Yes, my show is called The Cyber Queens Podcast. And it's just as ridiculous as it sounds. No, I'm kidding. The branding was very purposeful. Okay, I personally branded this thing. And I do know a branding thing or two. So what it is, is it's aimed at addressing the gender and diversity gap in cybersecurity and really to inspire. So me and a lot of the fellow women that I know working in cyber are mid-career pivoters, usually after our 30s or after one or two careers already into cyber. And I'm like, we have a talent pool shortage. We still have a shortage of females. Like on an entire red team I worked on, I was still the only female. I look around at panels and DEF CON speaker lineups and I'm like, God, where are the other ladies who are just like me? So our goal to address the LGBTQ and gender and diversity gap is to try and inspire more Gen Zers to want to be in cyber. There's still a misconception out there that cyber is this super nerdy, dark, mysterious, unattainable career. And so we're trying to make it more relatable, more realistic. Tell people about all the jazzy projects we work on, about the upward mobility you can experience and about, like for me as a single parent, cyber completely changed my life. And I just want everyone out there to know you don't have to suffer in a customer service job. You don't have to suffer where you're at. You can start over at any time. You can come in at any time and start learning this. My mother is in her fifties or sixties now, and I am just sucking her into it. And I'm going to turn her life around too. So really, that's what we're about. So we're rebranding cyber. We are talking about realistic wage expectations and salary myths. We're talking about technical skills. We're talking about hot niches. We're talking about career tracks. We're talking about everything we possibly can to try and inspire the next generation of the workforce to want to come join us here so that we can stop being burned out and go on vacation. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. We all felt that right here. (laughs) (laughs) So to add on to that with two parts, one, I agree 100% on both of those takes, but one, moving into tech and cybersecurity changed my life completely. I will forever be grateful as much as sometimes it can agitate me or irritate me or InfoSec Twitter can be InfoSec Twitter, which is a magical place. Let me stop. <laughs> but magical. No, Twitter is a magical place. I'm sorry. Yes. I hear people hate on LinkedIn too. They're like, everyone on LinkedIn is in sales and they're creepy. And I'm like, 
LinkedIn is my bread and butter. I freaking love LinkedIn. LinkedIn is where it's at. If you're, you must be doing it wrong. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it did. Coming from my background, which I'll probably get into more in detail one day, but it literally allowed me to provide a life for my family that I didn't think was attainable because I came from the inner city and did not go to college. So coming from that to doing that all from learning how to take something that was just an interest of mine, that curiosity, and now turn it into something is amazing. And two, to your point about Gen Z, I feel like there is so much untapped potential and they are naturally inclined. They are naturally inclined from the simple fact that they have devices. I came from like, my mom brought a computer home and I think I was like a freshman in high school. And she was like, if you break this, I'm going to beat your mom. Dial up. Yeah. Yeah, Dial up live all day. Dial up modems and you're talking one minute and the next thing you know, someone picks up the phone and then you hear the, I'm on the computer. (laughs) No, that was millennials. Like we kind of grew up half analog, half internet in our hands, but like Gen Z, all.com, the .com generation is what they're called. Like, Grew up with devices in their hands. My daughter, when she was two, could unlock my phone and open YouTube and get to the video she wants. So funny story. My kids, so we got, when my kids were younger, we got them like the Nintendo 3DS parental locks on it so they couldn't go on the internet. So my son found a way to bypass that. So what happened is the Nintendo store didn't follow the internet rules that you set on the DS. So what they would do is they would go to the Nintendo store and they would play the trailer. Where are all the trailers? On YouTube. So they would play the trailer, Get it would go to YouTube. They would then stop the trailer and just back out. And then they would be like, oh, weird. Look at this video we're watching. That's not Zelda. That's not right. Yeah. So, How did and, you do that? Yeah. yeah. My hat's off to them. I'm so jealous. Like I only started three years ago. Could you imagine if I started in college or like right out of high school? And anytime someone asks me, do I have any regrets about jumping into tech or cybersecurity? I say that I, I, my only regret is that I didn't do it sooner. Everyone asks me, they're like, if the salary disappeared tomorrow, we know you make a bunch of money, but if the salary disappeared tomorrow, would you still do it? And I'm like, absolutely. This is what I was meant to be doing. Would I still have that curiosity? Yep. Like to me, tech brings me back to when I was like five and I would sit at my grandmother's house and my grandmother used to just let me tinker with everything. There were two rules. I couldn't break it. Intentionally? It's not about intention to break it. It just usually ends up. I couldn't break it intentionally. But if I fix it, great. If it was already good and it was, and then I broke it, you didn't want to make that little Jamaican woman angry. So there was that. And then the other one was, she was okay with it, but my mom and dad weren't. So whatever I did better be back how I found it by the time they would pick me up and my grandmother- Reverse engineering, beautiful. And my grandmother just used that. So now anytime I get to tinker or mess around with stuff or my latest thing, now my niche space is like API hacking. It brings me back to that little kid going, if I do this and do that. And then when I think about it, I'm like, probably, it probably wasn't really safe a lot of times seeing that like power was still plugged in. But that's another story for another day. Love you, grandma. So so we're going to wrap up, but- before we do, Meryl, I mean, you've dropped a lot of gems here today, and <laughs> we've even shared a soapbox moment with the training stuff. But if there was one piece of advice you could give to any new and upcoming red, blue, or purple teamers, mainly purple, what would that advice be? It would just be to find someone whose career you want, find someone who does what you want, and understand the, t- the steps they took to get there. The best way to be where you want to be is to backwards plan. 
And also, please don't be afraid to just leap in and try. So many people will hold themselves back or they'll think they can't do it or they'll think that if they do try it and they fail, they'll look stupid. Please just leap in and start getting into it with us. I don't know anyone here who looks you dead in the face and goes, oh, you don't know what that means? God, you're an idiot. We're all here to help. We're all here to break down gates and make it possible for you to succeed better, faster than we did. I I hope the next person after me does it in a year, not three, one. So I just want to say, take the mindset forward proactivity, take the mindset forward of approachability, like red teamers and blue teamers. It's on both of you. Red teamers, stop being the big D-I-C-K in the room. And blue teamers, stop saying it's because we gave you a soon like local user access. It's because you did a soon breach. It's because you cheated. It's, those are false positives. Just stop it. Stop it. Please realize we're all fighting one war and we're currently losing. So we need more people. We need more talent. We need better access, cheaper access to training. We need more professionals and we need a better mindset or we're going to continue to lose until none of us have jobs. Clip that. So, <laughs> so That's all right. <laughs> Meryl, thank you so much. I guess we, we've been trying to plan this for a little while, but I am so glad that I got you on the show. So glad that you could share your experiences and stuff with us on Hacker Valley. Again, any way I can help or you know how to find me, just holler. And ladies and gentlemen, everybody watching, this has been another episode of Hacker Valley Blue, season two, Bridging the Gap. I've been your host, Davin Jackson, and this has been my guest, Meryl Vernon. Oh, please tell them how to find you. I think you mentioned it earlier, but tell them again how to find you. Oh, yes. You can find me on Twitter at SheWhoHacks. I'm also available on LinkedIn, Meryl Vernon, or you can find me through any one of the Cyber Queens podcast outlets, cyberqueenspodcast.com. I'm open in my DMs, happy to chat with anyone about anything, being stuck, needing advice, quick cert that you can get, literally anything. I'll just help. I just want to help. Thank you so much for having me on and letting me rant (laughs) your platform. Thank you. And again, make sure you check out every, all the other shows on Hacker Valley. Make sure you log on and join our Discord server. The link will be in the description when this episode airs. You can chat with us there or you can find me on Twitter, DJX underscore alpha, or you can find the Hacker Valley. Until next time, everybody be safe and take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hacker Valley Blue. If you did, please remember to like it, subscribe to the channel, share it with your friends and colleagues and family members, get it all out there and make sure you tune in for the next episode. Also remember to join our Discord server and you can talk to me and some of the other Hacker Valley family. So make sure you go check us out over there too. And I will see you next time. Peace.